Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church. We're going to start a new series of messages today, and we are going to be looking at this New Testament epistle that we call 1 Corinthians, which really is just a very long letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And we're going to title this series, The Wisdom and Power of God, unapologetically picking up on a phrase that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, where Paul says, Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ Jesus, the one that we've been singing to, is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. Of God, And we're going to talk about that verse when we get to it in a couple of weeks, but let me tell you why I think that's so helpful just to anchor the entire series of messages. Um, I want you to think about at least uh, two different ways that probably all of us have experienced the city of Washington, right? Uh, the first is I want you to think about the view that you get of this city as you either take off from or land at DCA, right? It is this majestic view that you really never should get over. Like, I get frustrated with people that are so absorbed with their phone and so DC cool that they can't bother to look out the window and be like, you know what? That's pretty amazing. There's the Capitol and the Mall and the Washington Monument and the White House and the whole city kind of laid out in front of you. And it's a pretty awe-inspiring view of this place that we get to call home. And I love that view, but I want you to contrast that for a minute with the view of the exact same city that you would get if you walked around downtown at noon on a Tuesday. Right? In some ways, it's a more real view. It's a grittier view. It's a uh, slightly less inspiring, slightly dirtier, but more real life kind of view of the exact same city. And the reason that I'm saying that is in this letter, the Apostle Paul really bounces back and forth between what we could call like a takeoff and landing view of the Christian faith, and then a very street-level view of the Christian faith, right? Um, when he talks about the power of God, which is what we're going to be talking about today, that's kind of like takeoff and landing stuff. And he spends a decent part of the letter at a pretty high altitude to inspire believers. But he also regularly zooms right down to street level and discusses like the nitty gritty of Christianity. We could call that the wisdom of God. He oscillates between the power and the wisdom of God. Um, by the way, the street level stuff is why you often don't hear a series of messages that walks through the entire letter verse by verse, because those of you that are at least somewhat familiar with 1 Corinthians know that a lot of this street level stuff gets a little messy, right? Right? 
But he's going to talk about divisions in the church. He's going to talk about sexual immorality. He's going to talk about believers who are suing one another. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about spiritual gifts. He's going to write 1 Corinthians 13 so that everybody has something to read at their wedding. I mean, he's going to go all kinds of different places over the next couple of weeks. And we're going to follow that rhythm. But today we're going to stay fairly high level. We're going to be talking about what we would call takeoff and landing stuff, power of God kind of stuff. And maybe we want to start with the highest level and the simplest observation. That what we read in our Bibles today is a real letter that was written by a real man to a real group of Christians in a real city. So it is probably helpful, even in these first couple of verses, to think about this as something like an ancient equivalent of me sitting down to write an email to our church. That's what it would have looked like. That's what it would have felt like. That's how it would have been received. Now, obviously, you and I know that there's a pretty significant difference between me emailing the church and what Paul's doing here, and that is that we believe that the Spirit of God is breathing through Paul as he writes this, which is why it ends up in the canon of scripture. But we understand that not to mean that Paul when he's writing scripture sits there in some sort of like spirit induced trance where his hand is just moving across paper and he has absolutely no idea what's happening, right? It's just sort of flowing out of him without him even having to engage his mind, like the kind of thing that you probably prayed for at least once in college where you're like, "Lord, just go ahead and do it. Type it through my fingers without me even understanding it." Um definitely prayed that in seminary. It doesn't work, by the way. But whatever. Um Right, That's not what's going on. The Spirit is actively working, but working through a real man to a real church in a real city. All of which is important because you need to understand that Paul and the Corinthian church knew each other well. Right, They had pretty significant history. The Apostle Paul established the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. If you want to read the full backstory, go to Acts chapter 18, right at the beginning of the chapter through like verse 18 or so. Um, He's there. Priscilla and Aquila come to faith and the church in Corinth is born and starts to grow from there. But more significantly, after planting the church, Paul then spends the next 18 months of his life there making disciples, teaching the word of God, doing his whole thing. So they are very well known to each other. And Paul is actually writing this letter to the Corinthians, not on his second missionary journey, but on the third missionary journey. He's in Ephesus. It's at the time of Passover. So he's there in the spring. And scholars would say it's either the spring of 54 or 55 AD. Either way, this letter is written, call it 21, 22 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So as Paul writes to this church that he knows well, to this church that he loves, um, he sits there and begins with what is in many ways a standard Intro. There was a designated format that letters in the ancient Near East would follow, and Paul, by and large, follows the script that he would start by identifying himself as the sender of the letter Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Yes, he is taking a minute to remind them that, hey, this is not a letter from your buddy Paul. 
This is not a letter from a spiritual advisor. This is not a letter from a voice that you've heard on a podcast. This is a letter from the founding pastor of your church. More importantly, this is a letter from an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ called by God on the road to Damascus to preach the gospel, to plant churches, and to make disciples. He says, oh, by the way, Sosthenes is with me. We actually don't know a lot about Sosthenes, but we think he's the same one mentioned in Acts 18, who used to be a ruler in the synagogue, becomes a follower of Jesus, ultimately gets beaten for his faith, and seemingly starts to travel with the Apostle Paul. Probably he was actually the one whose hand was moving across the paper as Paul dictates the letter. But he's there with Sosthenes, who is our brother who's come to faith in Jesus, and he's writing to the church of God at Corinth, right? The letter's from Paul, and here's who it's to. But then he starts to tell the church of Corinth who they are, right? He, he starts to insert some pretty significant theology right off the bat. He says, you are those sanctified in Christ Jesus. You're called as saints, even though in many ways this church is a hot mess. I mean, they're going to deal with stuff the likes of which you're like, wait a minute, these guys are way more screwed up than we've ever even thought about being true. But he says, you're saints. With all those in every place who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you, this is very standard, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think a lot of times when we're doing our personal Bible study, we kind of read these first couple of verses as boilerplate stuff to just kind of like get under our belt before we move on to the good things. But I want to slow down and pay attention to what he's saying because, yes, he is reminding the Corinthians who he is, an apostle of Jesus. But far more importantly, he is reminding the Corinthians of who they are. And my job for this morning is to remind those of us in Christ who we are. Because he writes to our spiritual ancestors, to Jews and Gentiles, to men and women, to slave and free, as we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. And he tells them very simply that they are the church of God in Corinth. And that's more than just, you know, reminding himself of the location that he's writing to. That's more than just, you know, trying to localize this letter. There's deep significance when he says, you are the church of God. Right, those of you that are familiar with the New Testament may not be surprised to know that this word that's translated church into the, in the English is the Greek word ekklesia. If you've heard that word, you've probably also heard somebody say that in Paul's day and age, that word did not have any explicitly religious connotations to it. And it certainly was not a Christian word. It was just a very common Greek word that meant a group of people. It meant a community of people, right? Which is why we say all the time around here, church is not just an event you attend, it's a community you join because that would have been the understanding of Ecclesia 2,000 years ago. The church is far less about a group of people who happen to show up at the same place at the same time every single week and much more about a living web of relationships anchored in Jesus that gets lived out throughout the course of our week. But notice what he says to this group of people. To this little ecclesia in Corinth, he says, you need to see that your community is distinct from every other community in Corinth because you 
as Christians belong to God. When it says the church of God, it's a possessive. It is saying that to be a Christian means to belong to God. And he means that collectively, that the church belongs to God, but he means the church belongs to God because he wants each individual Christian to see that they belong to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people, right? To be a Christian means that you have signed over the title of your life to God, right? I, I got some time earlier this week to hang out with a friend who took a little road trip down to a little Christian school in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I got to speak at their chapel. So we had a whole day to connect in the car, and we were just talking about this idea of, like, what does it mean to really say that you belong to God? And I was like, man, I, I, he was like, can you make that practical? Like, 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 be a little clearer about that. I was like, I can make that super practical, Right, Because we were in his car. And I'm like, all right, somewhere there is a title that either says that you own this car or the bank owns this car or somebody other than me owns this car. And there would be a number of different mechanisms by which you could sign the title of this car over to me. At which point it is no longer your car and it is now my car. Right? I get to drive it where I want. I get to park it where I want. I get to do what I want with it. It's mine. Yes, I now have to put gas in it, and I have to pay the insurance, and I have to get it repaired. But it is my car, not your car. Right? And it's like, yeah, obviously the difference between those night and day. What we are saying, what Paul is saying is that to be a Christian means that we recognize that we are born as the holder of the title of our own life. And Jesus says, what I want you to do is sign the whole thing over to me. Right? To be a follower of Jesus means we have signed our life over to God. And anything less than that is not really biblical Christianity. That's why the Apostle Paul, in a different letter, says, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And I am convinced that one of the things that holds us back in this life is a desire to figure out if we could get a slightly different relationship with God. Where we don't exactly sign the title of our life over to him, but maybe we have like joint ownership. Right? A lot of us are intrigued with like, maybe God could be like the co-owner of my life. Some of us, although we wouldn't say it this way, we're like, actually, I'm not even sure I want God to be a co-owner. I'm thinking more like an investor. Right? I'm thinking like an investor in my hopes and dreams. And you can spend all day being like, is he like an angel investor? Sounds biblical. Or is he like a passive investor who's like, look, I'll just fund all your hopes and dreams? Or is he going to be like a little bit more of an active investor? And I think some of us are like, okay, he's going to be like a little bit of an active investor. But God's like, no, no, I'm not trying to be an investor. I don't even want to be a co-owner. I need you to sign the whole title over to me. I need you to trust me. And understand when I say that, some of us are like, wait a minute, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's great that you're doing this. 
But that is not how this was explained to me when I became a Christian. Right? Somebody just told me I had a God-shaped hole in my heart and Jesus was going to fill it. And it was going to make me sad. And you're trying to sign over like I'm a car and I belong to God. I just wanted to get my needs met. Look, that person didn't lie to you. You are never going to experience the fullness of life until you're in a living, active relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? You're like, wait, wait, wait. They, they told me that I need to be a Christian because I'd sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, true. Right? Sin is the warning sign that maybe none of us are doing quite as good a job as the owner-operator of our lives as we like to pretend. And Jesus comes so that we can be forgiven of our sin and receive eternal life. 100%, that is made the essence of the gospel, but it's not the entirety of the gospel. right? The blood that Christ shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins is also the purchase price over our lives. right? Where we say, I need forgiveness And I do need you to touch the core of who I am. And God, if you were willing to do that and make me alive forever, I would want to hand over the entirety of my life. And if we understand that correctly, that's not threatening, it's freeing. Because if you go back to Galatians one more time, Galatians chapter 4 verse 7 helps us understand what it feels like to belong to God. Because Paul does say very clearly, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. The verse that Raquel read earlier. When when I say you belong to God, it's as a child. It's as a son. It's as a daughter. It's the same way that I still hold Emma, our youngest, at night and rock her before she goes to bed, even though she's probably too old and I need to give it up. But she's my little girl. And I tell her that every night. You're my little girl. And she objects to the use of the word little. I mean, she's there. She's like, I'm not little. Um, And I'm like, all right, you're my big girl. But even when I walk you down the aisle and even years from now, you're always going to be my little girl. Right? Not in any sort of like possessive thing because I've preached the sermon that technically she belongs to God. She's God's little girl. But like there's something tender about being like, but you're my little girl. It's that kind of belonging. It's where God would hold you in his arms and say, yeah, but you're my little girl. You're my son. You're mine. And the question is whether we will surrender to that or whether we're going to kind of stiff arm God a little bit and be like, ah, get where you're going. I'm just not 100% sure. Because once we give in to that, we begin to experience the fullness of the Christian life. We begin to experience what Paul is calling the Corinthians too. Right? We begin to experience a new purpose in our lives. Look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 says. It says, To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, we've read this before, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and and ours, Paul is getting right to the essence of God's purpose in the life of the Corinthian believers. The overriding purpose of God 
in your life, if you belong to him, is that he will make you become more and more like Jesus Christ. That's what Paul means when he says you're going to be sanctified, that you're called to be saints, that you're called to be the holy ones of God, that you're going to be set apart from the rest of the world. And I know we all, myself included, have a lot of questions about God's purpose in our lives as it relates to grad school and marriage and kids and where we live and what we do vocationally and whether we take the trip or don't and all kinds of stuff. And that's important and God has wisdom to apply in all of those situations. He promises to lead us by our right hand, to give wisdom to those who ask, and to lead us by the power of the Spirit who lives inside of us. So I'm not saying that those questions are irrelevant. Those questions matter a lot, but those questions all find their proper place when they're like a subsidiary component of the overall purpose of our lives, which is to become more like Jesus. And if you're wondering what's God doing in your life, he is somehow arranging all of the unique circumstances that you're walking through today with the desire that they will make you more like Jesus. One of my favorite explanations from this comes from C.S. Lewis, feel like it's Mother's Day, so we'll break out the fine china of a C.S. Lewis quote just to celebrate appropriately. Maybe break out the best C.S. Lewis quote. One that on a good day I can get through without choking up, but no promises. He says this about God's purpose for your life. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. and does not seem to make any sense. I'm guessing there's more than one of us in the room that's like, oh my goodness, that's where I'm living right now. What on earth is he up to? You've prayed that in the last week. The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's God's ultimate purpose in our lives. And if we're looking to Jesus for anything less than that, we're going to be continually frustrated. But if we stop fighting that purpose and start to cooperate with it, not only will we no longer feel like we are swimming upstream, but we will know what it is to swim with the current of God's grace and God's power. And a lot of us like the idea of purpose, but we're trying to find the purpose without first going through the purchase. And we don't want to surrender, we just want to get the benefit. And he's like, no, it doesn't work that way. I want to turn you into a palace and I want to come and live inside of you, but I need you to know that you belong to me. Right? If we're intrigued by purpose, we're certainly intrigued by provision, which is where Paul goes next, verses 4 and 5. I always thank my God for you. It's like, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful to be a part of your church, you know, the life of your church. Why? Well, it actually has very little to do with you, and it has a lot more to do with the fact that God has given you so much grace in Christ Jesus, that God has enriched 
you in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. And we just want to pause there for a minute because what Paul is doing is he is picking up on two things, speech and knowledge that were extremely important to not just the Corinthian believers, but to the life of the city of Corinth in general. These were prized abilities. These were held in very high regard. Maybe the DC equivalent would be like influence and education or something like that. Everybody in Corinth wanted to be known as an orator and everybody in Corinth wanted to have a certain amount of education and knowledge and wisdom, right, to be considered part of the intellectual, cultural, and socioeconomic elite. And what Paul is saying to them is like, yeah, actually, you all know a lot about God, you do know a lot about the gospel. It's kind of funny because he's like, yeah, you had a pretty good pastor, right? But like y'all know a lot about God. Y'all know a lot about the gospel. And you speak so eloquently of the glory of the gospel. You guys can deliver a pretty fantastic sermon about the power of God. But don't forget all of that is the result of God's grace in your life. God was the one that enriched you with that speech. God was the one that enriched you with that knowledge. You need to be grateful, not arrogant, right? He's just kind of setting the stage because he's going to come hard after pride in the next couple of chapters. But he is challenging the Corinthian church right from the beginning to be humble stewards of the gifts they have received. He's saying all of your abilities and speech and knowledge, the things you're doing to stand out in the city, Man, don't use that for your glory. Remember that that was a gift given to you by God for his glory. Right? So we need to think about the gifts that God has given us and ask if we are being humble stewards of them for God's purposes or whether we're trying to misuse them for our purposes. But he goes on to talk about provision in verse 6 and 7. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants the Corinthian church to see that they have everything they need to fulfill God's purpose for them in that moment. The thing that we need to pay attention to is that the you in this passage is plural, consistently, adamantly, unflinchingly plural. And what we tend to do in our individualized culture is take 1 Corinthians 1, 6, and 7 and apply the totality of it to us as an individual. Yet so much of what Paul does in this letter is say, no, there is none of us in this church that has every gift necessary. There's none of us in this church that are sufficient for the purposes of God on our own. That what Paul wants to see is, hey, there's a reason that God knits his people together in local communities called churches where we get to live out this idea of being the body of Christ. Different gifts, different abilities, all rowing together in the same direction for the glory of God in the city. Right, and I think about that a lot for our church. Right, I, I think about the ways that we as a community, meaning each of us as an individual, the ways that we've been enriched, meaning the gifts and the talents that God has given you 
the things that you're good at, the things that you can do without breaking a sweat that look near impossible to everybody else. And when I look around the room, I'm like, man, there's a lot of gifts. There's a lot of talents. There's a lot of ability. Like there's a lot of leadership horsepower in the room. And I'm not saying that to suck up to you. I'm saying it because I think it's actually easier to pretend that that's not the case and be like, woe is us. We're just a tiny little church in Arlington. What could God do with us? And I'm like, well, maybe we need to take a little bit more of a sober little look in the mirror and be like, actually, I think God could do a lot. Because I was just talking about natural talents and natural abilities. Then you add in this idea that God has given every single follower of Jesus a spiritual gift or something that you're uniquely empowered to do. And I think if all of us went all in on the idea of being used by God to make disciples in this city, the results would be pretty phenomenal. I, I don't think our big challenge is that we don't have anything to offer the city. I think our big challenge is maybe we're afraid of what it would look like if we all went in and said, guys, let's do this. Let's be the hands and feet of Jesus. Let's be the ambassadors of Christ in this city. Let's all go together in the same direction after the same purpose and see if God might not do something through us like he did through the Corinthian church. He's saying, RCC, you have collectively, if you all work together, you have everything you need to take your next steps together as a church. And to me, that is Profoundly challenging, but also incredibly encouraging. And by the way, you know this, but we don't go do it in our own strength. We don't go do it in our own power. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We say it all the time, but God has no thought that we are going to live the Christian life in our own strength and in our own power. He has every expectation that if we are walking by faith, we will feel a daily need for the strength of God. That if we go a day of our life feeling like we don't need God's strength, if we go a day of our life feeling like we don't need God's grace, that should be a warning sign, not a sign of celebration, right? We should not get to the end of the day and be like, whew, that was awesome. I don't think I needed you for anything today other than like the general grace of breath in my lungs and my heart kept beating. But other than that, man, I crushed it today. Like we kind of dream of that, being like, man, there was not a single moment where I felt weak. There was not a single moment where I felt in over my head. There was not a single moment where I felt dependent. There wasn't a single moment that I really needed to lean in you. Some of us are shooting for that ideal. And Paul is like, that is a tragedy. That is a disaster. You're supposed to live every single day being like, Lord, I need you here, 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 and here. Moms, you get this. Right? I mean, I'm not going to try to give you three points on being a great mom. I always think it's kind of funny when male pastors get up and do that. I'm like, oh, really? Tell me more. Um, I can tell you there's some great moms in this church. But I can tell you that the best moms in this church and the best moms in every church are the ones who cultivate a deep sense of dependency on God who are totally comfortable with the fact that you do not have everything in you that your kids need, but that you could be a conduit for the grace of God. And there's an encouragement there. Because being a parent is not easy. Being a mom is hard. It's exhausting. 
Man, I feel so bad, honestly. I, like, I feel bad for anybody that would sign up for parenthood and think they can do it in their own strength. I'm like, Laura, Laura and I are trusting the best of our ability in the grace and the power of God and still feel like we get our butts kicked on a regular basis. I mean, the answer is not, I mean, I'm all for books and podcasts and blogs and you, I mean, that's great, that's great. But what God needs is a generation of parents who are willing to trust him and to say that in my weakness, his power is made perfect. And when I'm weak, he's strong. So moms, I know it's not easy. And I know you've got a lot of gifts and talents and power inside of you. But I also know that if you belong to Jesus, you have the spirit of God inside of you. And that's your hope and that's the hope of your kids as well. That God gives us the strength we need for the mission that he's given us. He also has given us a pretty phenomenal promise. Verse 9, God is faithful. Paul's confidence in this is not in the Corinthian church. They got issues. They got problems. They're messing up things all over the place. Paul's confidence is that God is going to be faithful to the people that he purchased with the blood of his son. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's like, man, God's got you, and because God's got you, I have a lot of confidence for the future of the church in Corinth. All right, so my question for us today is just a very simple one. Do we see ourselves as a community of people who belong to God? Maybe to make that even more helpful, do you see yourself as someone who belongs to God? Because I think a lot of times we are trying to figure out a way to get the purpose and the provision and the promise, but hedge our bets on the belong to God question. And the gospel's like, yeah, it just doesn't work that way. That's going to frustrate you. It's going to disappoint you. It's going to annoy you. You got to wrestle with the purchase question. And then you can look for purpose and provision and promise. Right? John, and it says this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. I know your works. He's talking to the church in Laodicea that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. John writes it. Jesus is the one that's talking. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Kind of graphic imagery. But Jesus is just like, look, you're going to hate Christianity if you're just going down this lukewarm, hedge my bets, try to get some benefits. Some days I'm in, some days I'm out, blah, blah, blah. He's like, man, that's just, you're not going to love it. God's not going to love it. It's just going to taste really bad in everyone's mouth. He understands that there's people that look at the claims of the gospel and are like, no. I'm not handing over the title of my life. I'm going to hold on to that. Thank you very much. I don't know that I'd recommend it, but, but I understand it. And it's like a valid option. But he also understands that there's people who are going to say, okay, I'm in. Like all the way in. I offer myself to you, Romans 12, as a living sacrifice. Jesus, take my life and use it for your purposes. Those are the ones who are going to experience eternal life, and abundant life, and everything that Paul is offering the Corinthian church, everything that Paul's offering us. But you got to decide. Are you willing to sign over the title to God? Father, 
I'm convinced the only way we do that is if we are able to see your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your power. To hand over control is maybe the scariest thing we can do. And to hand over control of our life is the ultimate. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. God, I want to pray for those who have already made that decision. That they would just be reminded of what is now theirs. Purpose and provision and a promise. But God, I also want to pray for those of us who have not yet made that decision. Whether it's because it's something we've never thought about before today, or whether it's because it's something that we've flirted with but never really done. God, could this be a morning where you help some of us find the clarity that our souls have been longing for? Would you help us to trust you enough that we would just sign ourselves over? Say, Lord, here's my life. Take it. I'm yours. I need to taste your grace. I need to taste your mercy. I don't want to be a part of the church of God. Not just hang out around the church. So Jesus, meet us here in this moment. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church.